Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace, and it's a pleasure to be able to open the word with you this morning. Uh, thanks for sharing, JoJo. Just so excited about what God is doing in your life and excited to get behind you as a church body. And this is the task. And I wanted to do that before the Lord redirected me and had me stay here in Soldotna. I wanted to go to the unreached languages as well. So I might just hide in your suitcase if that's cool. Um, that'd be fun. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 6. We're just traveling through the gospel of John, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. Um, a close friend of mine had endured more than, than life's fair share of punches. She was growing up. Gr- grew up in a Christian home, but it quickly turned left with an abusive father, a divorce, a murder of a family member. So much suffering in so little time. And what do you do when you feel like you're living in, a, in hell? In high school, she decided that she would take the path of, of a good girl. And she buckled down at school, got straight A's, went to youth group, read her Bible every day, did her darndest not to rock the family boat, no drugs, no drama, the good kid that could be depended on. And she had told me vulnerably that this was done in part to try to control uh, her life's outcome. That maybe if, if she did all of the right things, then God would put the pieces of her life back together to, to give her that good life that she felt That he owed her. But when life remained puzzling and broken, when it didn't work, she walked away from God. Because she felt like he had already walked away from from her. And she remains an atheist to this day. How would you counsel my friend? Maybe you're in her shoes right now. Maybe you've been in her shoes. And it makes us ask the question, why do we come to Jesus in the first place? Like, have you thought about that? Like, what are, what are, what do we want from him? What are our expectations of, of this Jesus that we claim to follow? And is it wrong for us to want him to give us those things in life? For, for him to give us a good home life and protection and health and, and happiness? And, and what happens when he doesn't? And imagine the people around the world today. Those in poverty, oppressed, trafficked, enslaved. I mean, those who are crying out to the Lord for rescue for just the life's most basic needs. And so is it, is it selfish for us to come to Jesus for those, for those needs? I mean, isn't his offer of salvation, of, of eternal life, isn't, isn't that in a sense even ultimately selfish? I mean, it's certainly uh, my own self-interest to be saved from sin and hell and death. Right? To be in a better place with, with him. Well, this morning I see these types of questions and wrestlings being dealt with in, in John chapter 6. We're going to look at this journey together. And, and, and I think the problem we're going to find is not necessarily that we want Jesus to make our life better. We groan with all of creation in a broken world and we long for it to be put back together again. In our own hearts, in our communities, and across the globe. But I think what we're going to see in John chapter 6 is a, is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the, the good life actually is. That we're going to find that we often have our eyes on the wrong prize. And not only that, but there's also a misunderstanding of how Jesus came to do that. But the, the way that he leads us to the good life. We often also have our feet on the wrong path. And what my dear friend She was offended by the life that God had given her and the path that he was leading her down. So she veered off his path altogether. 
And I want us this morning to prayerfully consider here in John chapter 6, how do we keep our eyes on the right prize and our feet walking on the right path? We're going to find the Jewish people offended by Jesus here by two things. And the first one is they're offended by the prize Jesus came to offer. This morning we're going to see, we said there's seven signs in the book of John. Today we're going to look at number four and five, the walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus also has seven I am statements recorded in John. John likes him some sevens. And today we're going to see the first of those statements. He says, I am the bread of life. So let's jump into this chapter together and we'll explore these. First three verses of John 6, I invite you to open your Bibles and follow along with me. It won't have those verses on the screen. When it's in the word, I got the CSB in front of me. John 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up to a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. So it says there are huge crowds following Jesus. And why are they following him? It says they saw the signs that he was healing the sick. So they want in on this healing, right? I mean, if some dude was walking through Soldatna healing people's joint pain and cancer and he would get a following too, right? You thought the crowds at Trunk or Treat were huge, right? He would draw. But look at what, look what happens next. Verse 4. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Now this feels like a parenthesis. Like he goes back right into his story. But why does he mention the Passover? Well, I would say as a Bible study hack, if you see something that stands out and you don't know why it's there, I would press in. Because a lot of times what seems like a random detail uh, might be really helpful in understanding the passage. You might find some gold as you dig. So why I'd mention the Passover here? Well, if you remember what the Passover was, this was an annual celebration. Looking back to when God had rescued his people, Moses led God's people out of Pharaoh's hand and led them all to the promised land. This was essentially their 4th of July. They are celebrating, uh, and, and, and this today, as they're celebrating that, they are once again under foreign oppression. And so this explains why the crowds are all going down to Jerusalem as they all celebrate in Jerusalem, and there's a national fervor going on at this holiday time. So they've got Moses on the brain. They're ready for another revolution. Verse 5. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test Philip, for he himself, Jesus, he knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have little. So he says, Jesus, all we have is 200 denarii. Now that was eight months worth of a salary, so that's not nothing. But he says, with a crowd of this size, it wouldn't give everybody, like, literally a single bite apiece. So it says 5,000 men, but including women and children, our best guess is there's around 20,000 people that have gathered here. Jesus, with his signs and miracles and healings, is drawing Taylor Swift concert-level crowds at this point. And then you go on, okay, how are we going to feed these people then? Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? What are they? Now, I mean, this is intentionally comical, right? If eight months' wages are not going to feed 20,000 people, five loaves and two fish obviously won't either. We're at the Taylor Swift concert, and we've got one boy with a Happy Meal. How are we going to cover this? And and I think in a lot of ways, this was intentional from Jesus' point. He's showing his disciples their inadequacy to accomplish the task at hand. 
saying, you can't do what I'm asking you to do apart from me, but take heart because I am here. And Jesus says, watch what I can do. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, and I love this last phrase, as much as they wanted. Jesus doesn't just give them all a bite to eat. He gives them golden corral, but hopefully better quality. (laughs) All you can eat buff, as much as they wanted. And isn't this true of Jesus? He will give as much of himself as we want. And we find him to be more than enough for everybody. He's infinite God. Our Savior is not just adequate. He's more than enough. And in verse 12, he shows this with the leftovers. Uh, When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And I don't think this is a mistake. I think there's some symbolism here with the 12 baskets for the 12 tribes of Israel that Jesus is saying, I'm more than enough, not just for my people, but for those people that JoJo's going to, for people of all tongues and tribes and nations, for the whole world. And then, then in verse 14, of the people, when they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. I don't know if your translation, like mine, says prophet with a capital P. So who are they talking about, this prophet, the prophet, with a capital P? Well, in the Old Testament, God had promised through Moses, who was the first prophet, right, that another prophet was going to come into the world. And Moses himself spoke to this from God in Deuteronomy 18. Moses told the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. And here's the kicker, you must listen to him because he's speaking the word of God. And the people are going, the prophet is supposed to be coming. This let's, I hope bread man is the prophet, right? Bread man for prophet, bread man for prophet. And, and, and then there's this weird, so the way the story in John 6 flows, we've got the feeding of the 5,000 and then we're going to jump down and Jesus has this long teaching on being the bread of life, which is in step with the sign that he just did. But there is this story that they insert right in between of him walking on water and it feels sort of random. Bread, bread talk, but in the middle, walking on water. But what did we say earlier? When it's random, press in. And what's interesting in this process, what, remember back in, with Moses, what happened in the story of Exodus? He offers the people the Passover bread, and what's the very next thing that happens with the people of Israel? They cross the Red Sea. That they walk, God leads them miraculously across the water from slavery into life. And what do we see here with Jesus? After offering the people more than enough bread, he miraculously walks on the water. The one who has come to lead his people from ultimate bondage of sin and death into life. Hallelujah. What a savior. Look at their response in verse 15. Moses, um, excuse me, verse 15 said, Therefore, when Jesus realized that uh, when Jesus, when, therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force, To make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people that see what Jesus has done and they want to make him king. Uh, Moses had led the people of Israel out of the clutches of Egypt, right? And at that time, they had been the greatest empire on earth. And here again, Israel is under subjugation to the greatest empire on earth. This time, it's the Romans. And it's rough. They're being oppressed. They're being taxed out the wazoo. They are being crucified left and right. And here comes Moses 2.0. And they're saying, let my people go. 
Woo-hoo, free, yeah, 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 yeah. Just like our song reminds us. Now, if he can feed 20,000 people with a happy meal, surely he can whoop some Roman trash. They're expecting this new prophet to lead a new exodus, and they're going, bread king, bread king, bread king. But what happens? The bread king, he says he withdraws. Jesus slips away to the mountains. He says, I am coming as king, but this is not my timing, and it is not my way. So what's going on here with the people? Well, there's a couple, couple of prizes that they're eyeing in the wrong way. First of all, the prize they eyed it was temporary political peace. They want freedom from Rome, and it's hard to blame them, right? But we think about this in our own day and age. It doesn't require a political expert to see that we live in an imperfect nation with an imperfect system, whichever side of the aisle you find yourself on. But one of my concerns is that many Christian Americans today are much more obsessed with an earthly political savior than the one that Jesus actually came to be. I heard someone say recently about our local election, all our comfort depends on this. Really? All of my comfort depends on who got voted to the school board? Like, I'm in trouble if that's the case. It's interesting to watch the way this has played out in marriages. So uh, the latest poll, this is a couple years ago, um, interfaith marriages in our nation are, are about four in ten, which is interesting to me. At four out of every ten uh, marriages I have people who have different religious beliefs that are getting married to one another. Now, interpolitical marriages, people who have different beliefs on politics, are only two of ten. And that can be anywhere along the spectrum. But when you press in specifically to a Democrat marrying a Republican, are you ready for this purple marriage stat? Four out of 100. So we are saying, I'm a believer and I'd rather marry an atheist than a Democrat, right? That was my, Jill said one of her, I think it was a cousin or a friend who once, they, they tried to come up with the worst thing they could say as an insult to somebody. They go, you, you, you Democrat, right? So that's for free. What we're seeing here is an alternative religion. Right? And this is what we call, guys, political idolatry. Now, please hear me. Idolatry is when we make a good thing an ultimate thing. Government is a good thing. God gave it to us. Like, it's there for order and peace. So we're not saying, and we want to be involved and informed. And in fact, we want to do things God's way in our country. So we want to press into what the, the, the right kind of approach to taxes and just law for, for religious freedom and abortion and definition of marriage and how to care for the vulnerable, right? We're engaged with those things, but please listen to me. That's not our savior. Say it out loud. Has any empire on earth, no matter how aligned it is with the word of God, ever provided permanent peace and prosperity for its people? Egypt came and went. Rome came and went. America will come and it will go. Empires rise and fall and they cannot offer the bread that, that offers everlasting satisfaction and rescue. The other thing that they were eyeing was temporary physical prosperity. So when Jesus withdraws, this ravenous, hungry crowd starts playing this giant game of hide-and-go-seek with Jesus. And they finally track him down. Look at verse 25. When they found him, there he is, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? 
They saw the miracle, but they missed the message. The bread was just a, sh- a sign to point them to the real provision. And what, did, what were they supposed to do to the capital P prophet? Listen to him. Jesus wants to show them what, that they're missing what he's truly offering. Yes, come for the gluten, but stay for the Savior, as they would say. Verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the Father has set his seal of approval on him. He says, work for the food that is Son-given, Father-approved. So many, um, were li- think about living under the Roman oppression at that time. Rampant poverty, starvation, you have a lack of modern medicine. People are dying left and right. Leprosy, toothaches. So is Jesus being callous to their immediate physical, material needs? Well, of course not. One of the things he's doing is healing people left and right, right? But he compassionately knows that the, the need of those people is not less than that. It's actually more than that. C.S. Lewis said it so well. He said, our desires are not too strong. They're too weak. We are far too easily pleased. See, when Jesus says, don't work for the, for the food that perishes, he said, he's not saying it's sinful to have a job to put food on the table for your, for your family or yourself. He's teaching, man, in light of eternity, we've got to seek the food that will actually last. And again, he compares himself to Moses here. He's showing how he is the better manna. Remember, when God, uh, Moses in the wilderness, through, God through Moses, fills the people's bellies every day with manna. But that manna only lasts for the day, right? You eat the bread, you're filled for a while. The next day, you're hungry again. So no matter the quality of bread, it could be that elvish uh, lambast bread, like, uh, like Legolas offers, where he says, one small bite is enough to fill the stomach of a grown man. Which then Pippin goes, whoops, because I ate four of them. <laughs> so <laughs> hobbits are hungry. But even the hungriest of hobbits eating lambast bread will only be satisfied for a time, right? And what the, the bread that Jesus offers, he says, greater than the, the trick of feeding 20,000 people, I have food that will fill your belly, as Squints once said, forever, right? To which they respond, huzzah, right? Eternal sky bread? Yes, please. Verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. If there's bread that will fill us forever, remember that's what the Samaritan woman said, if there's living water that you're offering that satisfies my thirst forever, I want it. Yes, please. To which Jesus flips the script and he says, that that bread is actually me. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. In the words of an infamous lion, stick with me and you'll never go hungry again. That's the only time I'll compare Scar to Jesus, I, I promise. Verse 53, jump down to his teaching in verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. So if Jesus is the bread of life, how do we get that? How do we obtain that life that Jesus came to offer? Well, he says here, it's for those who will eat his flesh and drink his blood. And we say, well, wait a second. What is going on here? It sounds like vampiric discipleship, right? We finally get to channel our inner Robert Pattinson. Like, are we supposed to, like, what does that mean to drink Jesus' blood, to eat 
his flesh. And that's, that's weird for us, right? But to the law-abiding Jew, we have to understand he could almost have not said something more offensive because the law of Moses forbade them to eat meat with the blood in it at all, let alone drink blood. Eating a human, therefore, with the lifeblood in them, I like how D.A. Carson said it, that would have been an intuitively abhorrent notion to them. And blood was a reminder of death and, and violent death at that. So life would come through the blood? This was offensive at best. Now, is Jesus teaching here um, the Catholic viewpoint of transubstantiation, which means when we take that bread and that cup, that we are literally ingesting the body and blood of Jesus. I don't, we don't as a church believe that's the teaching. And I think as you read through even this teaching here in John 6, we show that this is a metaphor. He's pointing us to the, to the deeper truth that eating Jesus is a metaphor for receiving him and the prize that he offers by faith. What we see here is the crowd has its mind on the wrong prize. They want temporary political peace and temporary physical prosperity. So what prize is it that Jesus came to offer? I would say it this way. Our prize is not just the meeting of all my temporary needs. It's meeting with my God himself. The need meter. So last month, Jill and Lucy flew down to surprise uh, Jill's mom for her, I'll call it her 30th birthday, just in case she's listening to the podcast later. So for a week, I was back to bachelor mode, right? I was back to looking like Patrick here. Now, I missed, Jill. I missed, I missed like, the ways that Jill helps meet my needs. I missed her cooking. Like, I was back to punch bowls of cereal as my main study diet for the week. Uh, I missed her cleaning. Like, I was back to the same pair of socks and under, never mind. Uh, <laughs> but ultimately, I missed Jill, right? Like, God's gift to me in her is who she is and our companionship with each other. A partner to walk through life, not just meeting needs of mine, but actually meeting with her. And I do know how to do my own laundry, by the way. That was just an illustration. Jesus is, right, I, I, okay. Jesus is not just teaching that he is elvish bread on steroids. He's not saying, well, just take a bite of Jesus and then you can go on your merry way. What Jesus is teaching here, and I think what he means, is that he fills our core emptiness by remaining in us. The part of the beautiful picture here is when we take Jesus in, he's not digested and then excreted. He stays with us. Look at what he says in verse 56. He says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and here it is, remains in me. John's going to use that word, sometimes translated abide. Remains in me and I in him. And what's his comparison? Verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. He says there becomes this oneness, the same oneness I have with my Father, I'm inviting you to have with me. See, Jesus didn't just come to meet our needs, our, 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 our temporary needs. His great, our greatest need is the witness that he came to provide. It's not good for man to be alone, we saw in Genesis 2. But that's not ultimately found in a spouse or a close friend, but with God himself. This is why Augustine famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until when? They rest in you. And what we find here in Jesus' teaching is that the prize that he came to offer, the good life, is nothing short of union with Jesus himself. 
oneness, withness with the Messiah. And this is what eternal life is really all about. And this speaks to our security as a believer. If you flip back to verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father. This is what he wants. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, that was the equivalent of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, will have eternal life. And I will, there's our promise word, I will raise him up on the last day. There is resurrection, promise, hope, he says, for the believer. That Jesus' bread will permanently satisfy. It's not just that we will live forever. It's that we will live forever with our God. But how is that possible? Because we know a holy God cannot be with sinful humanity. So what is the path forward to this prize that Jesus came to offer? Well, not only were the Jewish, was the Jewish audience offended by his prize, they were offended by his path. Check out verse 60. Here's the response. Therefore, when many of his disciples, those who had followed him, there's more than just 12 at this point, when his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard, who can accept it? This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? When they said hard, they didn't just mean like intellectually, I can't understand some of the big words that you're using. The word hard there meant harsh or offensive. This is a demanding, difficult teaching, Jesus. Who can accept that? But Jesus here, he doesn't go, no, 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 no. Let me explain. You misunderstood me. I I can dial it down. No, he actually just doubles down on this. Look at verse 61. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. Wouldn't that be annoying? You could never get away with grumbling with Jesus. He asked them, does this offend you? So Jesus says, do you think this teaching is hard? Wait until you see what I'm going to say next. Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, he uses the word ascending. He's going to talk about this a lot in John. What do we find Jesus' path to be to ascend to his Father? He first descends into death. The path to glory and resurrection would be through crucifixion. Jesus says, you think that the blood drinking thing is offensive? How much more will you be offended when you see the crucifixion of the one coming and claiming to be the Messiah King. But this is the heart of the gospel, you guys. This is the heart of who Jesus is revealing himself and who he is and what he has come to do. And we're going to find that the, the, Jesus' great, his moment of greatest shame and humiliation is also his moment of greatest glory. But this offended the Jewish people because this was not the path to glory that they had envisioned. This was not the path to glory that they wanted. See, they envisioned the path straight forward where they had like Aragorn or Braveheart on a white steed annihilating the Roman army, establishing a huge wall, fortifying Jerusalem and distributing bread to the masses. Bread king, bread king, bread king. But I love the way that Edmund Clowney says it. He says that he would go to Jerusalem. But not to wield the spear and bring judgment, but to receive the spear, thrust and bear the judgment himself. You see, the path forward to victory would not come through the death and suffering of the Romans, but his own. And that offended the Jewish audience See, to summarize, I would say they they wanted a political leader, not a suffering servant. They wanted a physical savior to help them live, not a savior that would die. They had the right guy. They had the right man. 
right? This was Jesus. He was the Messiah, but they had him pegged for the wrong kind of role in what he had come to do. And finally, I'd say they wanted a path around suffering to victory. And it's hard to blame them, right? Who can't empathize with that? But Jesus came to show the way was not going to be around suffering, but it was going to be straight through suffering. Because think about this. What was keeping these people from the good life? It wasn't ultimately Rome and its army or its Caesar. And, And it wasn't an empty stomach that just needed physical bread. The enemy that needed defeated was their own sinful, rebellious heart toward their God and the, res- the, re- the impending death penalty that was going to come. They didn't want to do that, though. They didn't want to repent of their own sin and submit to the Lord. We, too, want a Savior who's going to deal with the evil out there, not with the evil out in, in here. To deal with them, Lord, not me. The, but the rebel that needs to die is is myself. It's my nature. And in order to receive a new life and a new nature, my old first must die. And one of the reasons that our God doesn't just simply meet all of our felt needs is because, man, we could have our entire wish list granted and still be empty inside, right? Like the, the thing that we're devoid of, the thing that will satisfy is only a relationship with the living God. And that could only be possible. If our sins were dealt with forever, paid for forever, that demanded death. And that's what our Savior came to accomplish. There were two responses. Two responses for his disciples at that point, then, and two responses for us now. The first one was to reject the bread. Look at verse 66. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back or turned away from Jesus. That's the wrong kind of repentance. And they no longer accompanied him. Many of these that had been following Jesus stopped following him at this point. Many of them are saying the gospel is offensive. And it is offensive. And it is foolish to the world. This is what 1 Corinthians says. Paul said, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, when we preach the king came for victory through dying or agonizing death on the cross, so the Jews are offended by it and the Greeks say that it's nonsense. See, it's offensive because it points and exposes to our own sin. It exposes my lack. It exposes my need. It exposes my rebellion, my inadequacy, my idolatry. And it's foolishness because it says the way that you win is by losing. The way that you live is by dying. The way that you find victory is through defeat. So one option, like many of them chose here, was to say, I'm out. That's crazy talk. I'll find a better path to life. The other option was to eat the bread. Peter, uncharacteristically, speaks his mind. (laughs) Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, Jesus, you're it. The gospel is the only path to life. I mean, imagine for a second, if Jesus had driven out all of the Romans, every single soldier was gone, would that have brought his people lasting joy? Like, listen, government and gluten cannot cleanse our hearts, cannot make us right with God, cannot usher us into his presence, can't offer eternal life with God. And Peter, I love this line. He says, Lord, where else would we go? Like, what's the other path forward? And I've actually found that so helpful. And guys, I think we need to wrestle with our doubts before the Lord because this is a weird thing. 
We're called to believe that there is a God who we've never seen or audibly heard from and that he exists and that he's our path to eternal life. We've got to wrestle with these doubts out loud. And I've found, man, I've asked myself, if I wasn't following Jesus, like which other path would I take? And it's not that I don't have any doubts, but I have yet to find an alternative path that is compelling at all. Where else will we go for life? Well, let me ask you today, will you reject his bread or will you eat his bread? Those are the only two options we have. How you and I respond to this scandalous offense is what determines our destiny. This is not being dramatic. This is literally life and death. So you think back to my friend, you know, what she needed saved from was not ultimately her suffering, her temporary suffering, but for a savior to walk the road with her in the midst of her suffering. And just like the Jews, she had the right man, it was Jesus, but she had the wrong role. And her incorrect expectations were, are, were costly. The stakes are high. We have a savior who does not promise us the path around suffering, but promises us a path through suffering. But our Savior blazed that trail for us. He's not calling us to anything that he himself did not first experience. And not only is he calling us to follow him, but he's going to walk that road with us. He's going to carry us through it. That he is our bread of life. That Jesus is our sustaining wisdom, our sustaining power, our sustaining love to know how to navigate the trials and sufferings of our life. And the reason we cannot just survive the trials, but actually thrive in the midst of the trials. What, what Paul said in Philippians, when he said, I can do all, I can endure all things. How? With the bread of life that's in my belly and never disintegrates. Say it out loud. Imagine today, you know, we got a little, another election cycle coming. Buckle up. Imagine your ideal political scenario all maps out. Like, it's exactly how you want the nation to be run. Because we, of course, know how to run a nation, right? And, and you have all the prosperity that life can throw you. Then you die. You stand before our God. Did any of that make our belly full before him? Look at me. Jesus doesn't desire less for us. He desires more. And I love, in, in the feeding of the 5,000 story, I, I love this, this detail that the other gospels give us, that, that Jesus breaks the bread, thanks his father, and then hands it to the disciples, who then pass it out to the masses. And this, this reminds us of the task we're, we're given. Uh, John 4, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus said, what sustains me and satisfies me is to do the work that my Father has given me and to finish it. And what did he say up on the cross? It is finished. He did it. And this is for us to do as well. Our, our food, what should satisfy us today, what should sustain us today, is to do the will of the one who sent us and to finish that task. And what's our task today? It's what Jojo is faithfully walking in. To go into the world and to make disciples of all nations to take that bread that we are finding satisfaction from and to pass it along to others who can pass it along to others. Brothers and sisters, we have a mission, and that is our food. And, and, and how do we pass that bread along? We proclaim the good news, the best news that we've ever received, that our king is alive and he reigns. And listen to me, there, there's a day coming 
See, Jesus is not ambivalent toward our hunger and, and, and the fighting that we have in our world. That's why there is an ultimate day coming where there will be no more war, but there will be no more hunger. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. And the hunger of our bellies will be satisfied forever. But it's not going to be around the suffering. It's going to be straight through it. It's not going to be around death. It's going to be through it. All the while feasting on the bread of life. And you know, we were, we were talking as an elder team this week and just kind of thinking about where we're at as a body. And we always are going through hard things. But just this particular season... And it just seems like there's a lot of people going through a lot of health needs. So to, to end our time together, we want to acknowledge the groaning that we have temporarily, looking to the permanent bread. So there's a couple of, of I, I know in a, in a room this size, we've got a lot of people who are hurting and healing. So this is not a sum total. But some brothers and sisters today that we just want to intercede before the bread of life giver this morning. One of them, our, our dear brother, Dave Flam. Uh, many of you know Dave, one of the elders in our church. And, he is now dealing with cancer for the second time in the last couple of years. Um, we're looking at a tumor in his bladder that they tried to remove, wasn't all able to get out, and they found it to be malignant. So we're going to be praying for Dave and Linda as they walk through this, this second round with cancer. I'm going to think of our brother Matt Manhart, who just a week ago, everything was good, and out of nowhere, in the early morning, he had an abdominal, I'm going to say it wrong, abdominal aortic aneurysm. My nurse wife said, yep, you got it. Basically, they had to rush him to the, to, all the way to Anchorage and went through a surgery that more often than not, people die through. And our brother is alive and well. He's back here at home with his wife, Teresa, um, but it's still a, 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 a tenuous path forward for him. We're paying, praying for our brother, Matt. We're also praying for our sister, Sheila. Uh, Sheila Isaac, who out of nowhere, uh, all of a sudden, her body just started shutting down, couldn't text, couldn't operate. And they're seeing some local neurologists, and it's not looking good in a path forward to her. Her body is out of nowhere, neurologically, just starting to fall in on itself. And we think of our, our dear friends, the partials, uh, going through the uh, death of Tanya's. Uh, her dad passed away, and now her mom is, is doing really, really, uh, having a really rough time down in Seattle. Um, do you know the latest from her, Dave? Okay. And her mom is, she's still, what's that? Okay. Oh, her mom coming back too? Awesome. All right. We want to pray for our, our dear family, the parcels, a couple of praises. Adrian, many of you have been pray, praying for him, who got hit by that, uh, the moose uh, about a month or so ago, uh, is doing well. He's, he's back here at home. And so we're praising God for, for rescuing him, what certainly looked like the end of his life for a minute there. And also praise and remember, praise God for Zach Armstrong. Many of you have been praying for him and his bout, our 17-year-old brother here at the church, bout with cancer. Uh, he's doing well. He's in full remission from what I understand and is really heading in the right way. So um, again, I'm mean, just talking to some brothers and sisters before. There, there's more going on here, but let's just pause to pray for these dear brothers and sisters and anybody else we know hurting right now. So Father God, we just, we pray as your body. We groan with creation. We groan with our brothers and sisters who are hurting. And Lord, what reminders that we are not meant to live in death. And as our bodies break down, it reminds us of the resurrection hope that we so desperately cling to. The bread of life who sustains us spiritually today will resurrect us physically one day. So Father, I just pray in the meantime, would you come alongside our brother Dave, our brother Matt, our sister Sheila, 
the partial family? Would you comfort them with the peace that passes understanding when they inevitably feel the anxiety that we as a body would be faithful to come alongside them and encourage them? And Father, we praise you for the good, the good healing you've been showing yourself faithful to in Adrian and in Zach. Although we know there are many more who are crying out to you for help. And Lord, you don't promise us immediate physical healing. But there is a hope that transcends every tear, transcends the grave. And is the living Jesus who ascended to the Father, first through his descent. So Father, as the good shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, may we be reminded that you're with us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that you fully satisfy us. We pray this in the name of the bread king, Jesus. All God's people said.